Amen. Well, friends, in our study of Mark's gospel, we've arrived at chapter 8, which is midway through that 16-chapter gospel. And it's noteworthy that here in the middle, there is a significant turning point in the narrative. The first half of Mark 8 points forward to this, and the second half of Mark's gospel takes its emphasis from it. In the first half of Mark's gospel, two years of Jesus' ministry have elapsed, and Jesus has been seeking to prove himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. How? By his amazing teaching, by his powerful miracles, healing blind people and deaf people and dumb people and crippled people, showing his power over nature, casting out demons, showing himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. But in that first half of Mark's gospel, there are only veiled and vague references to any suffering that Jesus might have to endure. But here in chapter 8, we have seen that Jesus asks a couple of questions, which elicits from Peter what we call the great confession. You are the Christ. With that confession, the second half of Mark's gospel is now going to focus on what kind of a Messiah Jesus is. And he's going to press upon his disciples the necessity of his suffering even unto death. And of course, the gospel will end with the actual experience of his passion culminating, culminating in the resurrection. So the confession of Peter here in chapter 8, you are the Christ, is a pinnacle in the gospel and it's a turning point. Upon hearing that confession, Jesus gives, as we saw last week, the first plain teaching of his suffering, where he says, the Son of Man is going to be given up to, to, by, the el to, uh, by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and suffer many things and be killed. Well, that hits Peter and no doubt the other apostles like a bucket of ice water on a sleeping man. And... Although his response was well-intentioned, he reflexively responds with a rebuke to Jesus. Matthew says, oh no, Lord, this can't happen to you. And that rebuke to Jesus, calling him away from the cross, has ominous implications. The thought of a messianic kingdom without the cross contradicted everything. It contradicted the counsels of the Trinity and eternity. It contradicted the will of God the Father. It contradicted Jesus' whole purpose in being born and coming to earth. And it undermined mankind's only hope of salvation if Jesus didn't go to the cross. And so in response to Peter's rebuke, putting aside all sentimentality, as compassionate as Jesus was, he puts aside all sentimentality, and you recognize that this mindset that would deter him from the cross comes from nothing less than the pit of hell. Who more than Satan would want Jesus to avoid the cross and avoid the salvation of a people? And so Jesus addresses Peter, but in a sense addresses Satan, whose thoughts are behind Peter's words, and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's things, but man's. And then Jesus proceeds with further teaching, which we'll see this morning. And rather than soften his message, that the Son of Man needs to suffer many things and be killed, rather than soften that message, he actually ratchets it up. And he's going to say that not only must I, as the Messiah, die, but all who would follow me must experience a form of death. 
Here we have in the passage we're going to study, and as the passage I read this morning, some of the clearest, most straightforward teaching about discipleship anywhere in the Gospels. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to become a Christian? And so I've simply entitled this message, Discipleship, verses 34 to 38. Turn with me, if you're not there already, to Mark 8. And this is our text, Mark 8, 34 to 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want us to see from these words the call to discipleship, the terms of discipleship, and then the incentives to discipleship that Jesus gives. First of all, the call to discipleship. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me. Note, first of all, what I'm calling the universality of this call. The call he makes here is not made merely to the 12. It's made to the whole crowd. So it's not a call that is restricted to some subset of God's people and not to others. It's not a call to the extraordinary office of apostle. It's not a call that applies only to pastors or men in the ministry. It's not a call that applied only to those who were with Jesus there on the earth in the flesh. If anyone will come after me. This is a basic generic call to discipleship. If anyone would come after Jesus and that word after me is a word that was probably used to describe disciples in that day who literally walked behind their teacher. So this is a universal call. This is a call to all people in all times as to what it means to come to Jesus and be a Christian. It's a universal call. And I want you to note the urgency of the call. What is at stake here in this call? What is at stake is of the highest consequences. In the four statements that follow, and you notice in the reading, I, I emphasize four, four, Jesus is going to give incentives, why you should follow him, why you should deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. He gives four incentives. What is at stake? Your soul is at stake. Because if you save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. The very salvation and eternity of your soul is at issue here. Also, how Jesus regards you in the final day, whether he is ashamed of you in that final day or not, is at stake in this call. Friends, nothing less than heaven or hell is at stake in this call. The one who responds to this call, or, or how one responds to this call, will determine your eternal destiny. Whether you live eternally in joy in the presence of God, or whether you live in eternal torment, in what Jesus called a place called hell. And so it's really important to give attention to the terms of discipleship. Your very soul's salvation and eternity is at stake. So let's move from the call to discipleship to look at the terms of discipleship that Jesus gives. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. The first term, the first requirement for coming to Jesus is self-denial. 
Now, what is meant by himself when he says you must deny, he must deny himself? What is the self that we are to deny? Is Jesus calling us to deny our personhood, to deny our individuality, to sort of rid ourselves of all personality so that we all become like computerized robots generated from the outside? Is, is that what Jesus means? No, not at all. That's not what he means by the self that we are to deny. I think we get a clue as to what he means from the immediate context. Remember, Peter had rebuked Jesus. When Jesus said he was going to suffer and be killed, Peter rebuked him. And then Jesus gave the counter rebuke, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I think this helps us to understand the self that we are to deny. There are man's interests, man's things, and there are God's things. The self that we are called to deny is the self that is all bound up with the things of man contrary to the things of God. Self here would speak of the complex of thoughts, desires, affections, motives, purposing that originate from within man and that are contrary to the will of God. And isn't it clear from the rest of Scripture that there is such a self within us, that there is an, a nature within us which is contrary to God and his will? Consider some other biblical statements. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Implication, it's not God's way, it's our own way. Isaiah 55, 6 to 9, God says, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than, uh, than the earth, so are my ways and thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our thoughts aren't God's thoughts. His are much higher. Proverbs 14, 12, a familiar proverb. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke 16, 15, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. John tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, all that is in the world, all that is in the self, is not of the Father, but of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are not from the Father, but of the world. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Man has his things, and, and he doesn't understand God's things, and they're even foolishness to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that we should no longer live for ourselves, indicating that before we were Christians, that's exactly what we did. We lived for ourselves. So what is meant when Jesus says, if anyone would deny himself, what is this self-denial? Well, the word denial means to forsake or renounce. It's a verb that is an imperative. It's a command. It's in the aorist tense, which means it's a once-for-all denial. What is Jesus calling his people to do here, or those who would-be disciples to do? He's calling would-be disciples to make a once-for-all definitive renunciation of the old self, to renounce self-idolatry in every attempt to follow the dictates of self, to deny the natural sinful self as it centers in the things of man, contrary to the things of God. So this is not a call to deny yourself something. Some of us were Roman Catholics, right? Raise your hand. And what we were asked to do when we were Roman Catholics is to give up something for Lent, right? And so people would give up chocolate or ice cream or some bad habit for the Lenten season, right? We're called to 
deny ourselves something. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying deny yourself something. He's saying deny yourself. Deny your very self-centered existence. And he's calling for a, a dying to a whole way of life. But let's flesh that out in a little bit more detail. What are some of the selves that we are called to deny? Let me give you several. We're to deny self-esteem. That may come as a shock, probably not to you, but to many in our society. Deny self-esteem? Self-esteem is one of the watchwords in our day, in psychology, in society in general, and even in Christian circles. There's so much talk about the importance of of good self-esteem and a good self-image and self-love and and self-worth and and self-actualization. But where do you find that language in the Bible? To a society that is obsessed with the cult of self-esteem, Jesus comes as a voice crying in the wilderness and calls us not to self-esteem but self-denial. In fact, he actually calls us initially to self-loathing. And that's biblical language. I quote for you, or I read to you, Ezekiel 36, verse 31, where God says to his sinful people Israel, knowing that we are all born sinful, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Remember the man in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple? Who was the man who went down to his house justified the man who was too ashamed to lift up his eyes to heaven but beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. My only hope is mercy. David said the sacrifices of God, what pleases God, are a broken and contrite spirit. Jesus said, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. When Jesus calls us to self-denial, he calls us to deny self-esteem, a sense of self-importance. Further, he calls us to deny self-righteousness. Remember in that same parable of the Pharisee and the publican, remember how the Pharisee is characterized? He's standing over there and he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe twice a week, I, or rather I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have, and I'm not like this tax collector, and you can see him looking with disdain down his long Pharisaic nose at this real sinner, righteous in himself, self-righteous. That's something we have to deny, as Paul did when he later said, and we'll talk about this later, having no righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. So when Jesus says you must deny yourself, what is he saying? Deny your self-esteem. Deny any sense of of innate goodness in yourself. Deny your own righteousness. Deny that thinking that you can have anything in yourself that will make you acceptable to God. Deny self-direction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is the way of death. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7, many of us have memorized Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The natural man, and that's where we all were, leans on his own understanding. He depends on his own native wisdom. His Bible is his own heart. But we know what Jeremiah 17, 9 says about the heart. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. People talk about common sense. And common sense can serve you in some realms, but in the spiritual realm, common sense, the way that seems right to a man, will lead to death. 
And so when Jesus says you must deny yourself, deny the self-directed life, deny the self-esteemed life, the self-righteous life, and the self-directed life, deny the life of self-satisfaction. Remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that we should no longer live for ourselves. Implication, pre-Christ, what did you do? What did I do? We lived for ourselves. It was all about self-satisfaction, self-gratification, and that's another self we need to deny. We also need to deny self-advancement. Natural man, the natural man not only lives with a sense of his own importance, self-esteem, self-direction, self-righteousness, self-satisfaction. He also lives for self-advancement. You ask the natural man, or if the truth be known, you ask the natural man, what's the chief end of man? The glory of me. Not the glory of God, but my own glory, my own advancement. And so that's another self we need to deny. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, anyone be my follower, be my disciple, he must deny himself. In all these dimensions, deny self-esteem, deny self-righteousness, deny self-direction, deny self-gratification, deny self-advancement. But then the next term of discipleship, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up your cross. So the next requirement to follow Jesus is you must take up your cross. Now, that certainly is a vivid illustration of what it means to deny yourself, But it seems to go beyond that. It seems to be a picture of suffering. There's nothing glamorous, nothing romantic about the cross. Now, for modern man, the cross has become, I fear, a delicate piece of jewelry or a nicely carved piece of wood atop a church building. But in Roman times, the cross was not a pretty picture. It conjured up nothing delicate, nothing beautiful, nothing aesthetically pleasing. It was a place where living men writhed in agony and experienced death throes. It was a place where men's faces contorted in pain and their chests heaved desperately with every attempt to breathe. It was a place stained with blood and sweat and gore. Maybe the modern-day gallows or electric chair comes closer, but even it, they do not represent the gruesomeness and the shame You see, time and cultural distance have removed us from the emotional connotations of the cross and what it meant in that day. Now, the Romans crucified thousands. But when Jesus says you must take up your cross, he's not simply speaking about generic suffering. He's talking about his cross. The concern of Jesus and our concern is not that thousands were crucified by the Romans, but that our Lord was crucified on a cross. And so the suffering that he's pointing to is the kind of suffering that he endured. We, are, we need to take up the cross of Christ. And so we have his words in John 15, 18 and to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The cross we are to bear is suffering for Christ. It's suffering for the reasons Jesus suffered. It's suffering for following Jesus. 
Let me note several things about this cross-bearing, this persecution that is the second requirement of discipleship. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. What is involved in taking up your cross? First of all, it's a suffering that is intentional or voluntary. You know how Jesus says of himself in John 10, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so it is with the disciple of Jesus. The cross is not imposed upon us. When you come to Jesus, you take that cross upon yourself intentionally and voluntarily. There is no compulsion from without. The true disciple chooses to take the cross. It's intentional. It's voluntary. Secondly, it's initial. The Greek tense here is the aorist tense, which points to a one-time, once-for-all act done at the beginning of the Christian life. You see, this is a requirement for entering the Christian life. Some people in our day will say that you can take Jesus as your Savior, you can have your passport to heaven, and later on you can make the decision as to how radical a disciple you want to be, whether or not you want Jesus to be Lord or not. As, but you can have him as Savior, but those are not Jesus' terms. Taking upon yourself the cross is an entrance requirement. It's something at the beginning of the Christian life. It is laid on your shoulders the moment you confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. It is initial, but then it is perpetual. Although it's a one-time act, starting at the inception of the Christian life, it has enduring consequences. You take up the cross never to lay it down until you lay down in death and enter into glory, where he uses the words, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's not something you leave behind in the early stages of your Christian life. In fact, I venture to say that the more you grow, Jesus says here, take up his. Each disciple has his own cross. You have your own personalized suffering to do for Jesus. Now, the basic suffering of the cross is the same suffer, this persecution of cross-bearing, because we're following Jesus, because we're thinking Jesus' thoughts and we're speaking the words of Jesus, and we're doing the things Jesus does, and we're refraining from doing the things Jesus would not do, and we're bringing the message of Jesus. So the basis of this cross-bearing, this suffering, is, is the same for all. But in another sense, it has many manifestations, and we all have our own particular cross to bear. For some, they will suffer mocking and ridicule, and it won't, the persecution won't go beyond you know, verbal persecution. For others, they will suffer some social ostracization. For others, they will suffer economically. You may not get a raise at work. You may get fired from your job because you refuse to comply with corrupt company principles, and that's a form of persecution for Christ. Some are called to be cut off from family members because of Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. Some are called to seal their testimony with their blood. So each person must carry his or her own cross and the kind of suffering may vary. Further, about this cross-suffering, it is painful. The purpose of carrying the cross-beam was to carry it to your own execution. And persecution is painful. Christians are the most loving, tender-hearted people in the world. Now, I know you know some who maybe don't feel that bill, 
But for the most part, Christians are the most loving, tender-hearted people in the world, right? Made so by the grace of God. And for them to be treated with coldness and mocked and ridiculed and ostracized, it pains the heart of the Christian. To be cut off from unbelieving family, as many do. You know, I've worked with the Amish for 15 years, and you get shunned radically and cut off from your family so your mother and father don't even want to see your own children and and you have to eat at a separate table, and they pay a dear price, and that hurts. To lose out on a promotion at work or to lose a job because you're a Christian and committed to Christian principles could hurt you economically. And then not to mention the pain of the physical torture, sometimes unto death, that some of our brothers and sisters are subjected to. So we have, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and all these forms of self-denial, take up his cross. And then there's one other term of discipleship in the text, and follow me. You see, the Christian life isn't all negative. In fact, it's not primarily negative. These deaths and denials, these persecutions, are followed by the positive call to follow Christ. You know, in the biblical ethic, the Christian life is never just put off, right? It's always put off and then put on. There's a negative and there's a positive. And so you must deny yourself. You must subject yourself to suffering. But then positively, you must follow Christ. And to understand something of that, let's go back to those self-denials and see how when you follow Christ, they are reverse. And so when you follow Jesus... Instead of self-esteem, there is self-loathing, at least at the beginning, right? When you follow Jesus, you take Jesus' diagnosis of your situation, and what is it? Out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and deceptions and all that catalog of sin, and you see, Jesus is diagnosing me not as a good person, but as a bad person. And you begin by loathing yourself when you follow Jesus. But it doesn't, it doesn't end with self-loathing. Jesus said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And when you humble yourself and confess that I am a wretched, rebellious, and hell-deserving sinner, and you come to Christ, he who humbled you then exalts you, so that who are you in Christ now? You are a, a fully forgiven, justified, adopted, forever loved child of God, a temple of the living God. God lives within you. You are indwelt and empowered by the, the Holy Spirit of God. You possess a clear conscience. You're equipped with an infallible roadmap for this life and for the life to come. And you are being made progressively more like God and like his son, Jesus. It ends in life. But how'd you get there? By inflating your self-esteem, by pumping up your self-image, by telling yourself how good you are, by learning to love yourself, by healing your wounded inner child? No. You got there by the grace of God showing you that you were a miserable, wretched, rebellious sinner in whom was no good thing. You got there by looking away from yourself to God's love gift, Jesus. You got there not by convincing yourself of your worthiness, but seeing his worthiness. And so in Christ, when you follow him, self-esteem is replaced by self-loathing, but that humbling leads to an exalted status as a child of God. And then in self instead of self-righteousness, when you follow Jesus, you trade that in for Christ's righteousness. 
We know Paul's testimony in Philippians 3. He gives that list of all of his pedigree and all the things that he could have boasted in in the flesh. And then he renounces all of them. And he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, dung, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. When you follow Jesus, you trade in all supposed self-righteousness for Christ's righteousness, And his righteousness is put to your account in justification, and you stand righteous in God's sight. And then following Jesus means you exchange self-direction for following Christ in his word. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. The implication is that every true disciple wants to observe all that Christ commanded. And instead of being self-directed, you become Christ-directed through his word. John 8, 31, Jesus says, he who continues in my word is truly my disciple. So instead of the self-directed life, your life is Christ-directed through his word. Instead of self-satisfaction, you live to please him. Paul said that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Yes, we were living a self-satisfied, self-gratified life, And you trade that in for aiming to please him. And instead of self-advancement, instead of living for your own glory, you come to live for the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine in front of men that they'll see your good works and glorify not you, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 5.8, you were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that what your life is about? I want to do what is pleasing to the Lord in my thoughts and in my words and in the things I do. That's the new focus of my life. Instead of self-satisfaction, I want to please the Lord. Instead of self-advancement, I want to live for his glory. And then in his name, you want to live for others. Even as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, but we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. When Jesus changes you and you want to live for him, he turns you outward from a self-focus to want to do good and live for others. And we are freed from that ruling self-centeredness. Well, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not only a death to self, it's a glorious life. It's an abundant life. What can be more glorious than living a life in fellowship with the living God, being guided by his infallible word, living a life that is truly pleasing to him, set free from the the selfishness, the selfish lusts and passions that once ruled us. This is life indeed. And so we have the terms of discipleship. If anyone would follow me, anyone become my disciple, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. And then finally, we have what I'm calling the incentives to discipleship. After giving those terms, he has four fours, four, 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 four. He wants to encourage people to meet those terms and to be his disciple. What are the incentives to discipleship? The first is what I'm calling the inevitable results of God's paradoxical ways. Look at verse 35. Or... To get you to 
take up your cross and follow him for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. Wait a minute. What are you saying, Jesus? In order to save my life, I have to lose it? In order, if I try to save my life, I will lose it? What, what are you talking about? Well, that's the paradox. What Jesus is saying is if you hold on to that self-centered life, that life of self-esteem and self-righteousness and self-direction and self-glory, and you save that life, you will lose your life. You will lose spiritual life. You will lose eternal life. You will lose life that is life indeed, life in fellowship with God. But if you are willing to deny yourself and to lose the self-esteemed and self-righteous and self-directed and self-satisfying life in favor of following me, you will gain your life. And so, that's the first incentive. Lose that self-centered life so you can gain life indeed because if you hold on to that self-centered life, you will lose what is truly life. You will lose spiritual life. You will lose eternal life. Jesus said in John 17, 3, in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do those words find you? Is anyone here who's still clinging tenaciously to that self-centered, self-willed, self-directed life? I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm going to live life my way according to my rules and for my own glory and praise. My friend, Jesus says, if you hold on to that life, you will lose life. You will lose spiritual life. You will lose eternal life. And Jesus is saying, let go of that self-focused, self-centered life. Deny yourself, follow him, and he will give you life that is life indeed. The second incentive is what I'm calling the incomparable value of the soul. Verses 36 and 37. Again, he's trying to get people to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. Here's the second incentive. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? On the one side, let's, let's have an imaginary scale here. And on the one side of the scale, put the whole world. Every conceivable pleasure that you can think of, what is it? A multi-million dollar home on some pristine white sand beach, an unlimited bank account, the finest fashions, the most sumptuous food, the most expensive gems, every pleasure of body and mind that you can imagine, whatever would ever titillate your imagination, whatever you have ever conceived of as something that would be pleasurable, imagine having it all the time and all of it. Deny yourself no temporal pleasure. Put all of that as the world on one side of the scale. And on the other side, put just one thing your soul, as that part of you that is indestructible and will live forever either in heaven or hell. Jesus says if you're valuing things properly, the scale should go like this. It should go boom. All of that is worth nothing compared to your soul. All of that 
is a speck of dust on the sails compared to the value of your soul. Why? Because the whole world, all of its pleasures and possessions and positions are temporal. They're fleeting. They're destined for destruction. But the soul is eternal. And the soul is too high a price to pay to gain the whole world. And then in verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here he's picturing the soul as lost, forfeited. And he's saying nothing in the world and not all the things in the world together will be adequate, an adequate price to buy the soul back. I read about a man years ago who bought an old frame with a picture in it. And then he sold it for a small price. And then later it was discovered that behind the picture and hidden by the backing was one of the few originals of either the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. It was worth an immense amount of money, and he sold it for a pittance. Imagine the regret that this man had, but nothing he could pay would buy it back. It's too long, too, too late. It was lost. It was sold. But words cannot express the remorse should one forfeit his or her soul. But once the soul is lost, it cannot be recovered. All the pleasures, all the treasures, all the possessions, all the positions of honor and glory in this world on one side of the scale can't compare to the value of your soul because all these are fleeting and destructible and your soul is eternal. The final incentive to discipleship is what I'm calling the irreversible verdict of the final day. In verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The day spoken of is a day of glory. You see, the Jesus standing before these people as he was speaking was not very glorious. Jesus was standing there in the state of his humiliation. He was standing there in a mortal human body that was subjected to insults and mockery and ridicule and rejection by men, would even be subjected to suffering and death. Jesus did not look very glorious, and he's predicting that it's going to get more inglorious when he is spit upon and his back is opened up, and his face is bloody with a crown of thorns, and, and he's emaciated, and he, his visage is marred. It's going to get far more inglorious yet. But in the day he's speaking of, it will be different. That will be a day in which he is invested in, with messianic glory. That's a day when he returns with the elect angels in a flame of fire. And for what purpose will he return with those angels? 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10 tells us, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, in other words, there's going to be punishment and there's going to be relief when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. This is speaking of the final day of judgment and Jesus will be the judge. And Jesus said that, he, you know, the, the name he used most of himself was son of man. Because by that, he identified with humanity. I'm fully human. I'm one of you. But there's a picture in Daniel of the Son of Man coming in the glory of the clouds and coming to rule over an everlasting kingdom. They see the Son of Man in his inglorious state as a mortal now. But one day he's going to come as that glorious Son of Man and set up his eternal kingdom. It will be a day of glory. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a time when people will receive either the penalty of eternal destruction or eternal glory. And as a final incentive to follow Jesus, he gives this warning in verse 38, essentially saying, if you do not deny yourself, if you do not take up your cross, and if you do not follow me, I will be ashamed of you in that day. What does it mean for Jesus to be ashamed of one? Well, compare scripture with scripture. Matthew 10, 32, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. In Matthew 7, 23, of those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of the father, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In Matthew 25, 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, whoever will not follow Jesus, who will not deny self, take up their cross and follow him because they are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of them in the final day. And you know, as Jesus spoke these words, <clears throat> it was not an easy thing for people to be identified with him. He says, this is a sinful and adulterous generation. The whole religious establishment was against him. The masses of people, even though they were astonished by his miracles, would end up crying out in concert, crucify him, crucify him. It was not an easy time or place to be a follower of Jesus and be identified with Jesus. You were in the distinct minority. But when you think about it and scan church history, when has it ever been popular to be a true follower of Jesus? To be a nominal Christian, yes, and some old writers talk about when, when religion goes in silver slippers, and it's respectable to be a Christian, but to be a true disciple of Jesus, when and where has it ever been popular? And so I ask, as we close, are you ashamed of Jesus or any of his words? Friends, as true disciples of Jesus, we must not be ashamed of him or his words and as a true disciple, you will not be ashamed of him and his words. What does it mean in our day, in our particular sinful and adulterous generation, to not be ashamed of his words? It means things like this. It means believing in a literal Adam and Eve, because Jesus did. It means believing that God alone has the right to define gender, and he made only two, male and female, blue and pink. It means to believe that God alone has the right to determine the terms of marriage, and marriage is to be only between a man and a woman, not between two men and not between two women. 
It means to believe that the Bible is sufficient to guide us in human and societal relationships, not contemporary critical theory, not intersectionality, and not the Marxist ideas that are foundational to the modern social justice movement, which is one of the biggest threats to Christianity and the gospel in our day. It's to say the Bible is sufficient to guide us in these human relationships, and we're not going to buy into a model that says society is characterized by oppressed and oppressor. That's Marxist, and it's a threat to the gospel. And if you're going to be unashamed of Jesus' words, you're going to believe the Bible is sufficient to guide us and not fall prey to those false ideas. And it is to believe that with all the injustices that are complained about in our day, the worst has got to be the injustice done to more than 62 million unborn children who have been slaughtered in what should have been the safest place in the universe for them, their mother's womb. Friends, Martin Luther famously said, and I reserve the, the right to quote this again because it's so good. You'll hear it from me again. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To be steady on all the battle fronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, may we prove in this particular sinful and adulterous generation to be your true disciples, dying to ourselves in all those dimensions of the self-life. May we take up our cross and be willing to suffer gladly, even joyfully for you in whatever ways you call us to bear the cross. And may we follow you and not be ashamed of any of your ways or any of your words in this sinful and adulterous generation in which you have called us to live. And may it be by your grace alone and to your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name.